Good morning. I'm glad we clarified that I am a Christian. Sometimes I wonder. Um, all right, that was a joke. I don't wonder at all. Sometimes I think I'm funnier than I actually am, so I just want to make sure that's clear. All right, well, this morning we are going to wrap up our study of 2 Thessalonians. And so we've got a lot of work to do. I just want to dive right into it. Hopefully that's okay with you. If it's not, that's still what we're going to do. That's why you showed up. So uh, let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 3. So let me just set up the letter uh, a little bit before we dive into the third chapter. Paul writes this letter to encourage these new believers who are facing severe persecution for their faith. And not only that, but they're also confused because there are these false teachers that are going around and they're teaching that the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus will return, has either already come or it's, it's imminent. Now we know that there is going to be this day when Jesus will return, but no one knows the day or the hour. And so some of these teachers were saying, it's going to happen soon. Like it's gonna happen next Tuesday at eight o'clock. So clear your calendars, you're not watching This Is Us. You're, you're not doing anything else, Jesus is coming back. That's kind of what was happening here. And so these new believers, they're experiencing persecution, they're experiencing suffering, and they're confused. And so Paul wants to give them hope. And he wants to give them truth. The world around them is filled with chaos and turmoil. They're surrounded by violence and oppression. They're, they're being persecuted. They're overwhelmed. They're filled with fear and probably some doubt. And Paul enters into that and he reminds them that they have been rescued from sin and death and that they are secure in Jesus Christ. That God is doing something in them in their suffering transforming them. And Paul wants to remind them of their hope for the future, that there will be this day when Jesus will return to rule and reign over the earth. And that hope for the future gives them hope for the present. And so this morning, we come to the end of this letter. And endings are significant, they're often memorable. Whether it's a letter or a novel or a movie, endings stay with us. The, in The Wizard of Oz, it ends with Dorothy's famous line. What is it? There is no place like home, right? You know the ending of the movie because last words matter. And for many of us, we've been maybe in a hospital room or at the bedside of a loved one as they took their final breath, and we, we've hung on their last words. Uh, near the end of his life, John Newton, who's most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace, said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great savior. That's what was among Newton's last words. So whether it's a letter or a movie or someone's last words, endings carry weight. They convey meaning. And this morning, we come to Paul's final words to the Thessalonians. And Paul tells them two things to close out this letter. And here it is. Spread the message and live the message. That's it. These are Paul's final words, at least according to the SMV translation, the Sissy Matthew version. Spread the, spread the message and live the message. And then he tells them how. So let's dive in. Uh, chapter three, verse one. 
As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people for not everyone has faith. Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him and Silas and Timothy, that the message of the gospel would spread and that they would be protected from evil people. And Paul writes this letter from Corinth, and Corinth is one of the most wicked cities that Paul visited. And so he's facing tremendous opposition because he's sharing the gospel, and he asked the Thessalonians to pray. When it comes to sharing the gospel with others, we begin with prayer because the spirit must work in people's hearts for, the, for them to be open and receptive to the truth of the gospel. Because no matter how eloquent or witty or compelling I am, there is no sermon that I can preach that can do that. The spirit of God does the work of opening the hearts and the minds of people to the truth and the power of the gospel. And so, uh, the, so prayer must be the rhythm that we practice. Because if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't do something, then it's not gonna happen. So, how are you doing with that? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those around you? Maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's a, a friend, maybe it's a, a, a mom at your, at your child's school, maybe it's a family member. In formation, we talk about the BLESS model, and it's really just a simple way to, to try to live missionally, to live sent in our everyday, ordinary lives. And it starts with, begin with prayer. That we begin each day by praying, God, show me who you want me to bless today. Because if all we did was pray that prayer, it would change the way we view the world. It would change the way we view others. Praying that prayer will open our eyes to the needs of those around us. So, we begin with prayer. But then we listen to the needs of others. As God begins to show you the needs of those around you, you, you start to listen, to, to really listen to them, not to fix them or advise them or rescue them, but because but, that's not what people really want. What people really need, what people really want is to be listened to. That's what we all want. They wanna know that, that they're loved, that they're seen, they wanna be heard. And when we listen to others, what that's communicating to them is that we care about them and that we're with them. We listen not to respond, but we listen to understand. And so we listen to the needs of others and then we eat with others. There's something about sharing a meal with someone that just creates an immediate connection and we've all experienced this. Like I love having a good meal with people. Eating with someone is a missional opportunity. And it's an opportunity that we all have. Uh, I'm Indian by ethnicity, and so in my culture, to share a meal with someone, to invite someone into your home for a meal is an invitation to intimacy and friendship. And I love cooking, I love having people in, in my home, but there's something so special about when we do that together. And I grew up in a home where this is just kind of the way we did things. That, that my parents always had people over for lunch or dinner. In fact, we had this thing, they still do this, uh, Sunday lunch after church. And it was never just my immediate family. Like I've never seen a time where there just were the five of us or six of us around the table. There was always 10 or 20 people in, in our home. And they did that because my parents just always saw people. 
And they saw people who wanted to be, to be loved, who needed to be cared for, and by opening up their table, by sharing a meal together, they were able to do that. And it's probably one of the greatest gifts that they taught me, this idea of hospitality, that, that we share ourselves with others as we eat together. And, and it's an invitation, again, to friendship. Now, people are starving, no pun intended, people are starving for that kind of connection, for that kind of friendship. And so we eat with others, and then we serve others. As we pray for them, as we listen to them, as we eat with them, we look for opportunities to serve them, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And then finally, you share your story. We watch and wait for God to open the door so that you can share your story about what God has done in your life, how he's transformed your life. Friends, if we ask God for those kind of opportunities, that's a prayer that God loves to answer. There's a story found in John 9 where a blind man is healed by Jesus and then the people bring him to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders begin questioning this man. They say, how did you receive your sight? Who is this Jesus? What did Jesus do? And the man responds and he says, look, I don't know the answers to all of your questions, but here's what I know. One thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. And that little sentence is such a great framework for us to share our story. The the man responds by saying, I was blind, This is what my life was like before I met Jesus. Here's my brokenness. Here are my failures. Here are the destructive patterns, the devastating habits of sin that that were part of my life. I was blind. But there came this point in my life where I recognized my need for a savior and that I needed Jesus to rescue me from sin and shame and death. I was blind, but now I see. Here is what Jesus has done in my life as I have put my trust in him. Here's how I am living in greater freedom, in in greater joy, in greater peace. My life's not perfect, but this is what Jesus has done for me. I was blind, but now I see. Your story is powerful. Each of us has a unique and powerful story of how God drew us to himself and how uh, he helped us recognize our sin and our need for him. And one of the most effective ways that we can share the gospel is simply by sharing our own stories. And each of us has a story. The most impactful faith conversations I've had have not been when I have debated or argued with someone about theological doctrines or issues. The most impactful faith conversations I've had have been when I've just been able to say, can I just tell you what my life was like before I met Jesus? Can I tell you what my life is like now? That's powerful. That's what people need to hear. And each one of us gets to do that. Let's jump back into uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Paul reminds these young believers, even though these people are faithless, he says, remember, God is faithful. 
And because God is faithful, Paul has confidence that these Thessalonians will do what Paul has taught them to do. And then he prays for them because they are facing severe persecution and suffering. They're, they're troubled, they're anxious, they're overwhelmed. And, and Paul reminds them of God's steadfast love and Jesus's perseverance. No matter what is going on in our lives, and I know that there are some of you even this morning in this room that you are in some difficult situations, but no matter what is going on in our lives, we can trust in God's steadfast love for us. He will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he will never betray you, he will never abandon you. And not only that, but Jesus has experienced the gamut of human emotions. He knows what it's like to be us. He's our sympathetic savior. And and he gave up the glory and majesty of heaven. He came to earth as a frail, helpless baby. He lived on this earth as a human being and he did it for you. And he did it for me. The writer of Hebrews says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what Jesus' joy was? It was you and me. We are his joy and his delight. And as he went to that cross, he thought of you and he thought of me. And he gave up everything so that we could gain everything. And as we center our hearts on God's unfailing love and Jesus' perseverance, we have hope. Not, Not just hope for the future, we have hope for today. We run to the Father for strength and perseverance so that we might spread the message of the gospel to those around us. Here's the second thing Paul tells them to do, to live the message. And so now Paul moves to to warning those who are idle. And And he identifies the root problem in verse 11. Here's what he says. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they are busy bodies. I think Paul's trying to be funny there, but he's also serious. These were some, there were some believers in the church that were idle and disruptive. And so what they did was they quit their jobs and they're living off the support of others without doing any work themselves. They're not busy. Paul says they're busy bodies. They're meddling in other people's business and they're disturbing the rest of the church with their idleness. And Paul tells them, settle down and earn your food. Now, they have become a burden to the church because these other believers are not having to provide food and money and other resources for them, not because they're unable to work, but because they're unwilling to work. So let me make sure this is clear. Paul is not saying that we should not provide for the needs of those who are poor, or he's not saying that there aren't legitimate times where people may be out of work, where they they just can't work for, for some reason. He's talking to those who are not working because they are irresponsible. And this distracts the church from their mission, which is to spread the message of the gospel. And these people are not living out the message of the gospel. And this is is not uh, the kind of way of life that bears witness to Jesus or how disciples of Jesus ought to live. So the question you might now have at this point is, well, why are they idle? Like, why are they not working? And there's, there's three reasons why this might have happened. So the first one is they just might be lazy. Like they just might not want to work. That's maybe one reason. A second reason is more cultural. 
Uh, in this culture, there was a system of patronage. And so Roman patronage was the system where there was a wealthy benefactor and he had a number of clients who depended on him for food, for money, and for, for all sorts of resources. And the more clients a wealthy benefactor had, the higher his standing in society. So it was sort of a counterfeit legal welfare system with the end goal of social or political gain. And so that, that could be a reason why, why they're idle. But I think very likely, most scholars believe the this is the, the reason why they're idle and why they're disruptive. It's because they have a wrong understanding of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times, the, the culmination of God's plan for creation, redemption, and the recreation of the world. And, and these believers don't really understand what's gonna happen. And this is most likely the cause of their idleness. They believe Jesus is coming back, or has come back, or he's gonna come back really soon. Like next Tuesday, eight o'clock, Jesus is coming back. If you knew that, that would change what you did this week, right? You wouldn't clean your house. You wouldn't do your laundry. Well, that's what they're doing. Why work if the end of the world, as you know it, is about to happen? That's what's happening here. And this kind of behavior is not healthy for the body. And this is not what Paul models for them. Here's what he says in verse seven about how he, how, what he's done. Verse seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, Paul could have lived off the support uh, of the churches that he had planted, and in some cities, that's what he did. Some churches that Paul planted supported him in his work. But in this case, he wanted to model for the Thessalonians a right theology of work. And again, Paul is not saying that we shouldn't take care of those in need. He's not looking down on those who are unemployed or those who just can't work for whatever reason. He is talking to those who can but choose not to work. Because as followers of Jesus, we are to share our resources, our, our time and our gifts with those around us. We are to step into the broken places of the world and work to make them better. We are to give out of the abundance of what God has given to us. But that's not what's happening here. These idle believers are living off the goodwill of others and they're becoming a burden to the church. And this is not the way of life for a disciple of Jesus. Because from the very beginning, way back in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God has designed work to be part of the flourishing of humanity. And God himself modeled that, that, that he worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. And work was also not the result of the fall. In Genesis 1.28, God gave us a job to rule over the animals, to, to fill the earth and subdue it. God put us on this earth, both male and female, he put us on this earth to be his vice regents, his representatives, because that's what we're called to do as his image bearers. And these believers are not living according to God's good design for their lives. Now, imagine if you were in this church and this is what's going on. 
This might have discouraged the believers who are trying to live rightly. And so Paul tries to encourage them and he says this in verse 13. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Keep going. Don't, don't let these idle believers throw you off track. Keep doing what is good. Don't give up. And then Paul moves to correct those who are idle. Now, when you read this, he's very direct. He's, he's almost harsh in what he says here. But that's because he's already warned them in his first letter. Back in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, verses, uh, chapter 4, 9 through 12, and then chapter 5, verse 14, he already warned those who were idle. And so now he moves from warning to rebuke. And he says this in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Verse 14, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. That's pretty harsh. But these believers need to be corrected. Throughout this chapter, we see Paul use the, this word command repeatedly. Paul has given these believers clear commands, clear instructions. And these commands don't come from him. He's actually only relaying to them what Jesus has entrusted to the apostles and, and what's been recorded for the church. And so they have clear instructions of how they are to live the message of the gospel, how they are to live in light of Jesus' return, but their understanding was skewed. And so Paul corrects them. And he tells them to disassociate from those who are idle and disruptive. Allowing a believer to persist in blatantly exploitive and disruptive behavior is not loving. It's not loving to the church, it's not loving to the idle believer, and it's not loving to the world that is watching around us. These people profess to uh, follow Jesus with their mouths, but they refuse to submit their lives to him. And when we see a brother or sister walking in sin, many times what we tend to do is we try to avoid talking about it. We don't feel like it's our job or we, we have the right to say anything about it. We wanna try to keep the peace. We wanna try to avoid conflict and so we ignore it. And when we see a brother or sister living in sin or, or stuck in destructive patterns, devastating habits, the most loving thing you and I can do is to come alongside them and help them see their blind spots. Help them see those patterns. Help them see those habits that are not in line with God's good desire for them. Because we all have blind spots. I have them and you have them. And the most loving thing that my community has done for me is to show me ways that I am not living in line with God's good desires for my life. And, and I need a few people, I can't do this with everybody, but I need a few people in my life that I trust, that I can be vulnerable with, that I can share everything and anything that's going on in my life. They don't judge me, but they also aren't afraid to lovingly challenge me and confront me. And most times, actually every time, I don't like it, but I need it, and so do you. I have a 
family member who I just struggle with. Like that's just kind of always been our relationship. Maybe you can relate to that, maybe you can't. Um, but recently this family member did something and I didn't like it. In fact, I, I felt like it was really hurtful. And immediately, I assigned wrong motives to what this person did. I didn't have a conversation with them. I just immediately decided this is why they did that. And I created a story in my head about why they did what they did. And, and, and it wasn't a good story. It wasn't a positive story in any way. And so when this happened a few days ago, I shared this with my best friend, Mary. And here's what I wanted her to say. After I shared, here's what happened. I wanted her to say, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, they are wrong and you are right. How dare they act like that? You are such a good person. You are such a good friend. You are such a good family member. You have every right to be angry. That's not what Mary said. And wouldn't life just work so much better if people did and said what you wanted them to? Well, that's not what Mary said. I sort of, you know, went on this rampage and talked about this person, and then she just paused and she said, you know, you don't really know why they did that. You don't really know their motives. And I immediately launched into all the reasons why I was right, why I knew uh, the reasons for their motives and what they had done. And I'm really good at rationalizing things. And I'm really good at coming up with arguments for why I am right, because I like being right. And so I said to myself, you know, Mary doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't understand the situation. I have known this person my entire life, and this is always the way they act. And a red flag for me is when I use the word always or never. This is always the way they act. Now, side note, Mary has known me for 22 years. She knows my family really well. But I thought to myself, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I have a right to be angry about this. And so the next morning, I was spending time with the Lord and I started thinking about this conversation. I started processing it with the Lord. And I wanted the Lord to tell me, yeah, you're right. You have a right to be angry. That's not what happened either. Because as I thought about it, I thought, oh, she's right. I don't know their motives. I'm not a mind reader. And I had created this narrative. I had made meaning out of something that I did not know. And I needed to confess that to the Lord because it was not loving and it caused me to think about this person in unloving ways. See, we all need people who will love us enough to challenge us and confront us. I need that. I need that all the time. I think you do too. So who are those people for you? Maybe for you, and this is not everybody, but you have to have a few people that you can do this with. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's a good friend, maybe it's a counselor. One of my people is my counselor. Because I know I can walk in there and I can tell her the worst thing that I'm thinking or that I want to do or, or that I've done, and she doesn't judge me, but she confronts me. And I need that. And, and so Paul says of these idle believers, that they refuse to do what is right, so disassociate from them. But don't treat them like an enemy, treat them as a fellow believer. And if this is not meant to be punitive, it's meant to be restorative. The goal in this is that that person would repent and that they would be restored and reconciled to the body. 
Friends, the most loving thing that we can do is to help other people see the weight of their sin and come back to the steadfast love of Jesus. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. That repentance is the key to transformation, to becoming more like Jesus, and that's the goal. That we want to be people who live the message of the gospel. So we spread the message, and we live the message. And if we're going to do that, we need to depend on Jesus for three things. Let's take a look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We have the peace of Jesus at all times and in every way. And peace is not the absence of conflict, it's wholeness, it's, it's harmony and it's flourishing. We have the peace of Jesus, but we also have the grace of Jesus. And grace is unmerited favor that, that comes from God. It's, it's getting what we do not deserve. We deserve death and eternal separation from God, but what we received instead is life, abundant life. Not just for eternity, but for right now. We are not saved by our own works, we are saved by Jesus' work on our behalf. Grace saves us, Grace sustains us. Grace is what keeps us going. Grace and peace is how Paul began this letter back in chapter one. Grace and peace is how Paul ends this letter. But there's one more thing that he says that we are to depend on, and it's found in verse 16. The end of verse 16, he says, the Lord be with all of you. That we need the presence of Jesus. Paul's final words to these believers includes uh, Jesus' final words before he left the earth, and that's the promise of his presence. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has commissioned us to spread the message and live the message, but he has not left us alone to do that. He has given us his grace, his peace, and his very presence. So a couple questions for you this morning. How are you doing with spreading the message? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those around you? The people that are part of your everyday life, your, your neighbor, your friend, your your coworker? Are you beginning each day by just praying, God, show me who you want me to bless? Because I'm telling you, if all you did was pray that prayer, it would change how you view the world and how you view others. Are you looking for opportunities to share your story of what Jesus has done in your life? Your story is powerful. Each of you has a unique and powerful story of how God drew you to himself and helps you see your great need for him. And one of the most effective ways we can share the gospel is just by sharing our story. So how are you doing with spreading the message? And then, how are you doing with living the message? Are there places in your life, devastating patterns, destructive habits of sin, maybe things that people don't even know about that you need to bring to Jesus? In the season of Lent, this is an opportunity for us to examine our hearts, 
to dig deep and see if there's anything that we need to bring to Jesus because it's not in line with God's good desires for our lives. And then do you have people who you trust, who you can be vulnerable with, who, who you have given the right to lovingly challenge you, to, to lovingly confront you when you are not living in a way that is in line with God's good desires for your life. We all need people like that in our lives. So who are your people? How are you being that person for others? In the midst of a hostile and rebellious world, we hold fast to God's commands and instructions given to us through scripture, and we hold fast to the grace, peace, and the very presence of Jesus. We do not waste time, we do not get distracted, we live on mission for Jesus. We spread the message, and we live the message.